Well, good morning. If you've been around Cedar Home for any amount of time, you know that we like to preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, but we usually don't try to preach a whole sermon in, or a whole book of the Bible in one sermon, but that's exactly what I want to do this morning. (laughs) Um, And I want to preach on probably a lesser read and understood book of the Bible, but a book that I think is very important, Leviticus. And so, in John Bunyan's book, the main character named Christian, uh, this is the Pilgrim's Progress, the main character named Christian leaves his hometown called the City of Destruction and literally runs toward the heavenly celestial city. Um, But after he begins crossing this large grassy plain, he comes to what was called the Slough of Despond, and it's basically a miry, muddy, boggy swamp. And he kind of gets stuck in it and has to move very slowly and very carefully through it to continue on his way. And if you've ever begun reading the Bible from the very beginning, it's kind of like the beginning of Christian's journey to the celestial city. Because, you know, it's pretty fast-paced, exciting narrative through Genesis and through Exodus. But then you get to Leviticus. And it's not exactly the same. It's kind of a swamp in the sense that it slows us down a bit because it's not, narr- it's not narrative anymore. It's a break from the storyline and it contains God's law code and his rules and regulations for Israel. And it needs to be waded through very carefully and thoughtfully. And so Leviticus has historically been notorious for being kind of difficult and uninteresting and irrelevant to Christians today, but this morning I want to try to change some of that by showing you just how significant and relevant Leviticus really, uh, really is for us today, and how it foreshadowed and anticipated and pointed toward the Messiah who was to come. And so to that end, let's pray and let's ask God to help us understand his word this morning. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, help us to understand what it means that you are holy. And Lord, help us to see how woefully short we fall of your holiness in our own lives. But God, teach our hearts this morning that though we are worse than we may have imagined, that we are far more loved than we could ever, than we could have ever dreamed and that we can know this by looking to the cross. Amen. So this whole story begins in the book of Genesis where we witness God calling all things into being at the command of his voice and declaring it all to be good. And of course, the crowning jewel of God's creation was man himself, you and I, a creature made in his image to reflect something of his glory and beauty to the rest of his very good creation. And here in the Garden of Eden, God gave our first parents, Adam and Eve, this one command. He said, go ahead, eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, God said, you will surely die. But even knowing this consequence, Adam and Eve listened to another voice, the voice of the serpent. And in wanting to set themselves up as equals with God, 
they rebelled against God. And when that happened, shockwaves of sin were sent out affecting all of creation. And everything now tended toward disorder and decay and death and sin. Sin became the governing principle in the hearts of men. The image of God and man was marred, disfigured, stained by sin. And Adam and Eve stood naked, exposed, and guilty before the holy God. And the holy God might have taken the lives of Adam and Eve right then and there, but he didn't. Instead, he pursued them for relationship after they had gone astray. And God even slaughtered an innocent animal and made garments from its skin to clothe Adam and Eve, to cover their nakedness, to show them that atonement, covering for their sin would require the death of another because the consequence of sin is death. And then Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden and the garden was sealed off and guarded by cherubim, which are angels, and a flaming sword. So mankind was cut off from this special place of life and fellowship with God. But as the population grew on the earth, God, surprisingly, continued to pursue fallen sinners for relationship. And in fact, these people that God pursued became a distinct people, separate from all the other peoples of the earth. They were God's chosen people, and they became known as the Israelites. But then in the book of Exodus, God's chosen people, the Israelites, become enslaved under Egypt. And that lasted for 430 years. But in a great exodus, God brought his chosen people out of Egypt through a man named Moses. But before the Exodus, God revealed something about himself to Moses at Mount Horeb in a burning bush. And the burning bush was an image of God's holiness. Because here in the flame, the flames of fire, God was communicating to Moses I am transcendent in my holiness, and you cannot get too close because you are not like me. You are not holy. My holiness would consume you like fire. So how would unholy, fallen, sinful man relate to the transcendent holy God without being consumed by his holiness? Well, after the exodus at Mount Sinai, God gave Moses instructions for building the tabernacle, which was basically a big portable tent where God's presence would dwell among his people. And God's presence would dwell specifically in the innermost room of the tabernacle called the most holy place, which was separated and uh, set apart and guarded, as it were, with this huge curtain embroidered, get this, with cherubim which represented a warning to anyone who would try to enter, just like the cherubim that were placed outside the Garden of Eden. Unholy man could not stand in the presence of the holy God. And this huge curtain delineated this separation both as a physical and a spiritual reality. And this is where we find ourselves in the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus chapter one, verse one reads, then the Lord called out to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. 
So here's God, whose presence is dwelling inside of the tabernacle, calling out to Moses, who is standing outside of the tabernacle. And and so this first verse of of Leviticus highlights the problem that sinful man cannot stand in God's presence. I mean, not even Moses can enter into the tabernacle. But then, if you read the first verse of the next book, Numbers, you read this in Numbers chapter one, verse one. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. So now Moses is standing inside with the Lord. So this first verse of Numbers shows us that the problem has been resolved, at least to some extent, in the book of Leviticus. And so what we're going to see in Leviticus is how this problem of sinful man's inability to be in God's presence was resolved. And I wanna say this too, it was not resolved by man. It was devised, designed, and initiated by God. In fact, most of the book, probably between 90 and 95% is God speaking. So it is God who is taking the initiative to bring back, to reconcile to himself his rebellious and sinful people. Uh, But briefly, before we really get into the content of the book, I want to explain the symmetrical or Uh, sometimes it's called chiastic structure of the book. And so, and it didn't really show on the wall as it does on the back computer. Um, (laughs) Can you see this? No, okay. Um, What it's supposed to show is, it's kind of this symmetrical thing. I guess you're just gonna have to take my word for it. But in chapters one through seven, we see the ritual sacrifices. Uh, In chapters eight through 10, we see the ordination of priests. Uh, In chapters 11 through 15, we see laws regarding ritual purity. And in chapters 16 and 17, we see the Day of Atonement. And then there's these symmetrical pairs of ideas that start descending in this picture that you can't see. Um, Chapters 18 through 20 have laws regarding moral purity. And chapters 21 through 22, we see the qualifications of priests. And in chapters 23 through 27, we see the ritual calendar And so, this book is structured symmetrically where there are these symmetrical pairs of ideas that center around and climax in the Day of Atonement, which we're gonna talk about later. And um, each of these symmetrical sections of the book deals with one of three main solutions for how sinful man could be brought into God's presence. So, there were rituals, which we see in chapters one through seven and uh, chapters 23 through 27. Uh, There were the priests, which we see in chapters 8 through 10, in chapters 21 and 22. And then there was purity, which we see in chapters 11 through 15 and 18 through 20. So let me explain these. So these rituals were things that were to be done by God's people to physically symbolize a spiritual reality. And the two kinds of rituals were, number one, sacrifices, were animals were killed to atone for the people's sin, just like we saw God doing in Genesis for Adam and Eve. So what we see now in Leviticus is a formalized sacrificial system being established. So number one, sacrifices. Number two, the observance of sacred days, which were special days where God's people would remember the things that God had done for them and give thanks to God. 
And the priests were mediators between God's people and God himself. And it was the priests who would carry out the sacrificial rituals to make atonement for the people and teach the people the laws of God and represent Israel before God. And purity, the third thing, was required of all God's people, not only for the sake of personal holiness, but also for the sake of remaining separate, distinctly different from the surrounding nations. And there are two different types of purity in Leviticus. So number one, moral purity, which is being morally righteous and holy and obedient to God, the same thing that we as Christians today are called to. But then number two, there's something different, ceremonial purity, which was being ritually clean and taking measures to become ritually clean after one had become ritually unclean. And so the best way to explain this is that there were some things that weren't inherently sinful things in themselves, but that if a person came into contact with them, they would become ritually unclean. And if a person was ritually unclean, he couldn't be in God's presence. And so, for example, in chapter 11, we find a list of clean and unclean animals that the Israelites could and couldn't touch or eat. And we don't know exactly why these certain animals were set apart as being clean and unclean, though there's speculation about that. But the main point was this, that by avoiding certain animals, Israel would be set apart from the other nations and would daily be reminded that God's holiness should affect every aspect of their lives down to even the very food that they eat. So think of it this way, as Israel separated clean and unclean foods for themselves, they were actually setting themselves apart as a people for the Lord. And there were also a lot of different things, uh, different laws regarding the uncleanness of skin diseases and infections and dead bodies and blood and other things. And basically, if a person came into contact with one of these things, he wasn't necessarily in a state of sinfulness but he'd be in a state of ritual uncleanness, and so he couldn't be near God's presence. And so to become ritually clean again, he'd have to go outside the camp and wait a few days and then take a bath and offer a sacrifice, and then he could be pronounced clean again by one of the priests, and then he could enter back into the camp, into the presence of God. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking right now. This sounds really weird. Like really weird. But I want to suggest that maybe it's us who are weird. Maybe this all seems really abnormal because you and I are abnormal. Maybe these things seem really strange to us because the way you and I live our lives is strange. I think we need to be very careful to never conclude that anything God does or commands is weird or abnormal or strange because this is exactly what mankind has been doing ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. 
And this is exactly what mankind is doing today by calling sin normal and by calling perversion natural and by calling disobedience against God just another way of doing things. But contrary to the message of this culture, man is not the measure of all things. And the things that man does in the world are not the norm. Sin is not normal. Perversion is not normal. Disobedience against God is not normal. What is normal in God's eyes are things the way he intended them to be. Listen to that. What is normal in God's eyes are things the way he intended them to be. But many things in the world today are not the way God intended them to be, including us. This is what makes us weird and abnormal and strange and unable in ourselves to stand in the presence of the holy God because holiness is the norm. But we, like the rest of mankind, are unholy people. But though this is true, Leviticus reminds us that number one, God's people are separate. God's people are separate. And this command to be separate is repeated over and over again in Leviticus. And the first time we see it is in chapter 11, verses 44 through 45, where God says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, or set yourselves apart for holiness, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So here God points Israel back to the time when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt, plucking them right out of another nation. But God didn't do that for any other people. And over and over again, the Old Testament says that the Lord was their God. But the Lord was not the God of any other people, and why not? Because the other nations were busily worshiping the gods of their own design and imagination. And here in the very context of Leviticus, God is bringing them into the land that he swore to their fathers to give to them. But God was not bringing any other people into the land of Canaan by a promise. So here God was saying, because I have chosen you and have separated you and have set you apart, set yourselves apart for me and be holy because I am your holy God. And this command is repeated again in chapter 18, verses two through five, where God says, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So God is saying, I am your God. Don't do what the Egyptians do. 
Don't do what the Canaanites do. Don't do what anyone else does. They are not your God. I am. And again, in chapter 19, verse 2, God says, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And again, in chapter 20, verse 7, God says, consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. And in chapter 20, verse 23, God says, and you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. He's speaking of the Canaanites. For they did all these things, and in the context he's talking about sexual immorality, they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. And then a few verses later in verse 26, God says, you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. So not only did God rescue his people from Egypt, but he redeemed them unto himself. Not only did he say, you are now free from them, but he said, now you are mine. And then this command for holiness is repeated again in chapter 21, verse six. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God. But here's the main point that I wanna emphasize. When God calls his people to be separate, to be holy. He's really calling us not to something totally unique and different. He's calling us to a return to the place of normality. A return to what is normal. A return to the way he intended things to be. When God says be holy, for I am holy, he's saying, be as I intended you to be. Reflect the image of the one in whom you've been created. So Leviticus reminds us that number one, God's people are separate. But number two, God's people are sinful. God's people are sinful. So though we are separate, we don't always act like we're separate because we're sinful to the core. And this is a huge problem. It's a problem when God calls his people over and over to be holy, but then over and over again they aren't. And the fact that God's people are deeply sinful is graphically and gruesomely shown in the first seven chapters of Leviticus where we learn that offerings had to be made to God and animals had to be sacrificed to atone for sin so that sinful man could be near God's presence. And so Leviticus presents us with five kinds of offerings that the Israelites had to make. So there was the burnt offering where a person would place his hands on a male bull or uh, a sheep or a goat or a bird without blemish and symbolically transfer his sin and guilt onto the animal and then slaughter it to make atonement for his sin and to express devotion and commitment to God. And there was the peace offering where another animal was slaughtered to express fellowship between the offerer and the Lord. And there was number three, the sin offering where another animal was slaughtered when a person had sinned unintentionally or didn't do something that he was supposed to do. And there was the guilt offering 
where another animal, specifically a ram, was slaughtered, when a person had become ritually unclean or had sinned against his neighbor. And number five, there was the grain offering, which thankfully didn't require another sacrifice, but was an offering of baked bread to the Lord to express thankfulness for his provision. And so we see that four of these five offerings involved sacrifice, the shedding of blood, death for sin. So whenever an Israelite was aware of his sin or was ritually unclean, he'd have to make a sacrifice to atone for it. And think about how many times a person might have to do this throughout his whole life and how graphically the image of sin resulting in death would be imprinted on his mind and on his heart. This was the message of the sacrificial system. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. And if you, a sinner, are to live, something without sin needs to take the consequence of your sin upon itself and die in your place. I have a friend who was on a hunting trip with his dad last year, and he shot a deer, but he didn't kill it immediately. And so he chased down the wounded deer, followed its trail of blood, and then eventually found it and came up behind it and shot it in the back of the head, but it was a bad shot, and the deer didn't die, and he panicked. He freaked out, and he ran up behind it with a knife and slit its throat. And you know what he said? He said it felt like one of the most awful, disgusting, gruesome things he had ever done. And honestly, it kind of messed with him mentally and emotionally to take life like that. Can you imagine if he had to do this all the time to cover his sin? And can you imagine if every time he killed an animal and covered his hands in its blood that he was caused to think that that's what he deserves to have happen to him? It would be traumatic. Sin is traumatic like that. Sin is traumatic like that. And God's people are sinful. So sinful that the picture we get in Leviticus is that of an unending flow of blood being spilled to cover sin. Our sinfulness, which leads to death, serves as such a stark contrast to God's holiness which leads to life. And you'd think that we as deeply sinful people would take God's holiness so, so seriously, but we don't. And in chapter 10 of Leviticus, there's a story about two priests named Nadab and Abihu who serve as a warning to us to take God's holiness seriously. I'll read chapter 10, verses one through three. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire, some translations say strange fire, before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. 
Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron raised no objection. Okay, so what in the world was going on here? Well, evidently, these sons offered fire and worship that the Lord had not commanded them. They wanted to worship God in their own way, but not in the way that God had prescribed to them. And and it seems that they had good intentions. After all, they're seeking to bring worship to God, but their good intentions had replaced the rightful regard they should have had for God's holiness and his instructions for how they ought to worship him. And God punished their carelessness and irreverence and disobedience and utter disregard for his holiness. Now, some would read this story and think, wow, that's a little over the top, God. Come on. These guys were bringing worship to you. Why do you care so much about how people worship you? And to that, God might say, as Paul did to the Romans, who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Or he might say, as he did to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without understanding? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Or he might simply say, as he frequently does, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. I think we need to be very careful to never conclude that anything God does or commands is wrong or excessive or unnecessary. There is no problem with God's laws. And to suggest that there is a problem with God's laws is to suggest that there is a problem with God, the lawmaker. And that is blasphemous. So the problem is not with God. The problem is with us, the ones who are deeply sinful to the core. And we know this is true. We can look at this world and we see brokenness and destruction and evil. And the truth is, it's even worse than we can see because most of the sin that occurs in this world is done in the heart or in the mind or in secret behind closed doors. And it was no different in the days of Leviticus. The nation was so large, the nation of Israel, that it was likely that a lot of sin would go unnoticed and a lot of sin wouldn't be dealt with and maybe some sin wouldn't even be recognized by the people who were doing it. And so, once a year, on what was called the Day of Atonement, God provided a way for the nation as a whole to be forgiven of sin and to be reunited with himself. And so we learn in chapters 16 and 17 that the high priest would put on holy garments and go into the tabernacle and he would offer a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering to make atonement, firstly, for his own sins. This is what the priest would do. And then he would go into the most holy place and he would take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering to then make atonement for Israel's sins as a nation. But only one of the goats was used for the sin offering and was slaughtered. But the other goat was called the scapegoat 
and wasn't slaughtered. Instead, the high priest laid his hands on the head of this goat and confessed over it the sins of the people and symbolically transferred that guilt onto the animal. And then he sent it away into the wilderness such that when it was sent away, Israel's sins were taken away, never to be seen again. So when God demanded the holiness of an unholy people and they failed, whether publicly or privately, God in his grace provided a way for atonement through the death of another. However, and this is a big however, that's why my voice is very low. (laughs) However, listen, all of the blood and the repeated sacrifices for sin over and over and over, day after day after day, year after year after year, emphasized the fact that it didn't really completely work. What do I mean? The problem of sin was obviously never really completely resolved evidenced by the endless duty of the priests to spill more and more and more blood to cover sin. When would it end? How much blood would have to be spilled to fully and finally atone for sin? Well, here's the truth. Animal sacrifices, while symbolizing the payment for sin never actually completely accomplished it it because no animal was worthy of paying the price for a human being who had sinned for a lifetime against the holy God. In fact, Hebrews chapter 10 verse four flat out says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so this whole sacrificial system was only symbolic and temporary and cried out for an actual, complete atonement for sin. But if no human was worthy of pain for his own sin, and no animal was worthy of pain for man's sin, who then was worthy? The answer is only the holy God only the holy God. And the whole sacrificial system here in Leviticus foreshadowed, anticipated, and pointed toward another sacrifice that would be performed by another priest on another great day of atonement 1,500 years later on a cross. Hebrews 9.26 says that Jesus the Son of God, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so as New Testament Christians, we can look back to Leviticus and be reminded that, number one, God's people are separate. But number two, God's people are sinful. But number three, God's people are saved. God's people are saved 
And Jesus, the only savior of the world, was the single, supreme, and permanent sacrifice for sin. Unlike the Levitical priests, Jesus never had to put on any holy garments to enter into God's presence because he himself was holy, sinless, perfect. That's because he was God himself in the flesh. That's why Hebrews 4.14 calls Jesus the great high priest. And unlike the slaughtered goat on the day of atonement, Jesus was the innocent lamb of God who was himself slaughtered, nailed to a cross for sin, our sin. And, And Jesus was actually worthy of paying the price for human beings who had sinned for a lifetime against the holy God. And Jesus would make an actual, complete atonement for sin. And Jesus was also the scapegoat who removed our sins from us and put them upon himself and took them away, never to be seen again when he was taken outside the city and crucified. And Jesus shouted in triumph from that bloody cross, it is finished, so declaring that all he had come to do in fulfilling the law perfectly and in establishing a new covenant of grace, all he had come to do was complete and final forever. And for all who will turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus, they will be washed clean by his blood, which covers their every stain of sin upon their hands and upon their hearts. But while Jesus' sacrifice does completely, perfectly, and permanently cover our sin, we are still called to be separate, to be holy as he is holy, and to not abuse the grace of God. And we are also called to sacrifice today. And how so? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verses one and two, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we who have trusted in Jesus are now ourselves living sacrifices unto God, which means that we are to give ourselves completely to him every day for his glory and for his purposes and for his will to be done in our lives. And Paul adds, do not be conformed to this world because the world does not live for God's glory and does not consider God's purposes, and does not seek God's will. And this kind of worldliness is so utterly foolish that to fully remove ourselves from the world, Paul says, requires a spiritual transformation within us by the renewal of our minds. But unfortunately, The truth is many Christians spend their lives with one arm clinging to the world and the only arm only feeling for God and only seldom touching or seeing him. The Christian life requires a release from the world 
and a complete reorientation of the mind and the heart toward God. So that when someone over here says, you're a kid and you don't do this, that's not normal, that's weird. You can say, I'm not of the world. I've been called out of the world to live for the holy God and that's normal. You're a a teenage boy and you don't do that? That's not normal, that's weird. I'm not of the world. I've been called out of the world to live for the holy God and that's normal. Or you're a college girl and you don't do this? That's not normal, that's weird. I'm not of the world. I've been called out of the world to live for the holy God and that's normal. Or you're a parent and you don't do that? That's not normal, that's weird. I'm not of the world. I've been called out of the world to live for the holy God and that's normal. You won't go here? You won't say this? You won't do that? You won't approve of this? You won't support that? You won't look at this? You wouldn't enjoy that? That's not normal, that's weird. I'm not of the world. I've been called out of the world to live for the holy God and that's normal. The way of God is normal. And it's wisdom, it's freedom, it's light, it's life, it's the way things were intended to be. But the way of the world is abnormal and it's foolishness, it's slavery, it's darkness, it's death, it's not the way things were meant to be. In fact, this is why in the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan named the town that Christian was living in at the beginning of the book, the City of Destruction. And this is why Christian literally ran from the city when he saw where it was leading. And at the first glimpse of the heavenly celestial city, So what is our motivation for leaving the city of destruction for the heavenly celestial city? It's the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus which shows us the ugliness and the horror and the tragedy of our sin but also the depths of God's grace and mercy and love. The truth is, all of our hands have been stained with the guilt of sin and with the bloody death of Jesus. His blood is on our hands because it was our sin that put him to death. But in God's sovereign, providential plan of redemption, The same blood that was spilled by us, which has covered our hands, was the same blood that was spilled for us, which has covered our sin. Listen to that. The blood that was spilled by us, which has covered our hands, was the same blood that was spilled for us, which has covered our sins. Incredible. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, but I will lay it down. Jesus willingly gave up his life unto death for us. God has brought good out of our evil 
for us. Incredible. Now, I want to end the sermon by saying this. I think there are perhaps five types of people in this room this morning. So there's the blind who doesn't even see the blood on his hands and who doesn't see the wrath of God that is looming over and above his head and who doesn't see that his wicked deeds are crying out for justice against him. And there's the fool who consciously overlooks the blood on his hands and who thinks that life is just a game of trying to be more good than bad and that the holy God, the holy God, will accept and approve him in the end. And there's the self-justifier who thinks he can scrub the blood from his hands and who tries so hard to be righteous and acceptable and pleasing to God. But like Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth, he scrubs and scrubs and scrubs, but cannot by himself remove the blood from his hands. And there's the rebel who by God's grace through Jesus has been made clean, but who continually and unrepentantly chases after unclean things and dirties his hands, like a person who's been taken off death row by someone who has come in and taken his place, but then almost without blinking has returned to his former way of life. And there is the holy who has by God's grace through Jesus been made clean and who is clinging to Christ and desires to be God's hands and feet to this world that is drowning and dying in sin. He has set himself apart for God in a radical way because he knows that he is alive, forgiven, blessed, accepted, chosen, adopted, free, in the light, a citizen of heaven, an heir with Christ, and so, so loved by God. And that is everything to him. That is everything to him. So who are you this morning? The blind? The fool? The self-justifier? the rebel or the holy by God's grace? We sang the song earlier this morning and it is a wonderful song with gruesome lyrics which go, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. These words remind me that sin is traumatic and that to be the people of the holy God is no light matter for it costs Jesus everything. A bloody, torturous, gruesome death and the wrath of God. But what an amazing thing to be plunged beneath that flood and to be covered with the blood of Jesus where we lose our every stain of sin 
and to be returned to the place of life and fellowship in the presence of God that had been lost in the Garden of Eden. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus, that those once stained with sin and covered with blood lose their every stain of sin when they are covered in Christ's blood through faith in him. So I wanna ask, have you plunged beneath that flood where you were saved by Jesus? And have you separated yourself from the world to cling to him? And are you today running toward his kingdom? I pray that you are, I pray that I am. Let's pray to God. Lord God, I thank you for this great book of Leviticus, which reminds us that to be your people is no light matter. Lord, it took the shedding of blood and the blood of your own son to cover and atone for our sin and guilt and the blood that was upon our hands. And Lord God, we thank you that there is forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation with you through Jesus. And Lord, as we now partake of communion this morning, where we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, Lord, may we be reminded that we are to be participants in this sacrifice by daily dying to the flesh and dying to this world and offering to you, Lord, our heart, soul, strength, and mind as a living sacrifice, which is normal and the way you intended things to be. We ask this all in your name, amen.